0: Well, after you commit your all to Jesus, when you get really excited about living for Him, don't be surprised if someone approaches you with some errant advice. A jaded friend, perhaps, or maybe a lukewarm family member, they'll come up to you and they'll say something like this. Now, be careful. Don't get too spiritual. You can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Ever heard that? Well, the second half of Colossians refutes this notion once and for all. Paul assures us this is no real danger. He encourages you and I in the opposite direction. He instructs us in verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Our true north should be God's truth. Our bearings fixed on Him, our focus heavenward. Our ambition, spiritual and godly. I like what C.S. Lewis once wrote on this subject. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought, thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. It's true, the more heavenly-minded and spiritually-minded you really are, the more earthly good you'll actually do. This is what tonight's chapters teach us. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things above. On the, earth. the old comedian Jack Benny was known as a penny pincher. He was a real miser. And the joke is told about him walking down the street and getting accosted by a robber. The robber stuck a gun in Jack's face and he shouted, Your money or your life? Well, after a long pause by Jack, the robber grew impatient. He growled at him again, Your money or your life? Benny replied, Don't rush me. I'm thinking about it. Well, it's sad, but for many people, their money is their life. Their mind is set on material concerns, money, and the happiness they think that it can buy. Paul is saying, don't be so shallow, so earthbound in your thoughts. Set your mind, fixate your thoughts, preoccupy your passions, direct your desires on the wonders of God. Here's another C.S. Lewis quote I like. We are half-hearted creatures... Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like the ignorant child who wants to go on making mud plies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We settle for earthy stuff and momentary happiness. Instead of reaching and grabbing for that which is higher and holier. For those spiritual realities that provide eternal joy and real deep down satisfaction. I love verse 3. For you died, he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you know that the Christian life is the hidden life? The world looks at the Christian and doesn't get our devotion. They scoff, oh, she's committed herself completely to Christ and she's got nothing to show for it. And to a degree, the world is right. For our God is invisible. Our home is over the horizon, out of sight, off the map. Our greatest rewards are yet future. Our Savior is seen only through eyes of faith. Our helper, the Holy Spirit, is like the wind. He's spiritual rather than tangible. He's sensed rather than seen. Our treasure is buried in our hearts. Our source of joy and power and life and love and peace and God's presence is accessed from the inside of our lives rather than from the outside in. In short, our life is hidden with Christ in God. One day the Pharisees, they approached Jesus and they said, Oh, you talk so much about the kingdom of God. Where is this kingdom? And Jesus answered, The kingdom does not come with observation or with outward appearance. It's not visible or tangible or earthly. Nor will they say, See here or see there. You can't point to God's kingdom. For indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. We're like an iceberg. The largest part of who you are and what you have is out of sight. It's below the surface. All that the world around us sees is the tip of the iceberg. And this is why we're laughed at, why we're ridiculed, why we're misunderstood. We have given our all to a kingdom that other folks can't see. But verse 4 tells us, When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. Hey, people might be mocking you at the moment, but one day the follower of Jesus is going to get the last laugh. For when Jesus appears, visibly and tangibly, the whole world is going to stand in awe. With jaws dropped, with tongues tied, they'll stand there in fear of His majesty. And suddenly your life, And what the world thought was your strange devotion will be instantly explained. It will be understood by all. For you'll be standing there beside Christ, clothed in His glory. In that moment, the hidden life will become the envied life. I read of an avid duck hunter. His name was Dean Gooden. When Dean died, a friend of his placed Dean's ashes In a pair of two foot long decoy ducks, mallard decoys. His buddy made the statement He has a good place here. He goes hunting with me. I even put bows on him at Christmas time. Well, you know, it's pretty sad when that's all you've got to look forward to when you die. People who live only for this life end up quacks. They really do. In Christ, we live for eternity. There's more at stake than just this life. It's so true. Only after you've become heavenly minded do you really understand what's of value here below. Verse 5 tells us, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Paul is speaking figuratively here. Our members are the sinful habits we cultivated before we knew Jesus. Now that we're a new you in Christ Jesus, we need to put off those sinful practices. And he lists the activities that he's talking about. First is fornication or sex outside of marriage. The Greek word is pornea. And it's a catch-all phrase. It was kind of a big garbage basket that you threw all kinds of illicit sexual activity into that basket. You know, one word covered all. It was a catchphrase for all kinds of illicit sexual activities. Pornography and homosexuality and adultery and shacking up and hooking up and friends with benefits and all the other varieties of premarital sex. You know, the buzzword today is safe sex. But God's Word says, save sex. God designed sex for marriage. Sex before marriage or outside marriage is never blessed by God. It might seem right to you, but God disapproves. Several years ago, a USA Today article reported that there's a 50% greater chance of divorce for couples who lived together before marriage than for couples who didn't. Don't buy into the lie that the world is selling. I've heard couples justify their sin by saying they just wanted a test drive before they actually bought Well, when it comes to sex before marriage, that test drive can end up a demolition derby. For when you're done, the car is all banged up and it no longer runs properly. God says, put to death fornication and then uncleanness and passion and evil desire and covetousness or envy, which is idolatry. Notice lusting after somebody else's stuff is considered by God to be modern day idolatry. You've exalted a thing above a principle. He continues, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Thankfully, this is how we once walked, but no longer. The grace of God has and is changing us. Aren't you glad? I mean, before we came to Christ, we were marching straight to hell. But now we've broken cadence We've broken step with the way the world is marching. Today, we're marching to a different drummer. We're getting in step with heaven. We're thinking on things above, not on things here on the earth. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things. And in the next few verses, Paul is going to teach us how to dress for success. Spiritually speaking, that is. You know, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit creates a new you. But afterwards, it's up to you to build a new wardrobe. There are attitudes now that you need to put off, and certain attitudes you need to put on. And he starts with those threads that we should shed. Here's what you need to put off. First, anger. The Greek word implies a simmering, festering kind of animosity. Of course, we know that not all anger is sin. There is a proper kind of anger. We can get angry over sin or over injustice or over prejudice. But when we sit on that anger, and when we let it stew, seldom does it result in anything good. It becomes a poison. It becomes bitterness and a poison to our own soul. We need to deal with anger before it becomes a sin. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Second on Paul's list of off-attitudes is wrath. The Greek word is thumos, or a hot volcanic anger. In other words, you need to learn to diffuse your temper, put off that kind of eruption, that kind of um, tumultuous attitude, as well as malice. Malice is taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. Never do that. I I was tempted to do that last night when I saw Georgia Tech get beat, but... I didn't want to take pleasure in someone else's misfortune. Put, put off malice. And blasphemy or any contempt for things, for God or for the things of God. That's blasphemy, contempt for God. And filthy language out of your mouth, insulting or disrespectful speech. Put these things off. These are not fitting for a believer. In verse 9, Paul writes, do not lie to one another. Hey, you remember how Ananias and Sapphira, remember those two cats? How they dropped dead when they lied to the Holy Spirit. I mean, God dealt with lying and hypocrisy so severely in the early church because He knew that there could be no meaningful fellowship if there wasn't truthfulness and honesty among each other. And so He tells us not to lie. Do not lie, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. But again, putting off is only half of the challenge. Verse 10 tells us that we should also put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Again, here's how you live the Christian life. You're putting off and you're putting on. You're taking these things, attitudes off and you're putting these attitudes on. According to Colossians chapter 2, we are complete in Christ. We're new creations. You remember in chapter 2, he said that we've been circumcised spiritually, that God has cut off that fleshly fold and he's made us new inside. But in the outer man, we still have issues, don't we? Residual habits. Tendencies that were programmed in before we came to Christ. Reactions that, that became habitual. And these things betray our identity in Christ. Thus, it's our job to put off these things and to put on new attitudes. We need to reprogram our thoughts. We need to develop new habits. We need to see ourselves in Christ and then learn to live accordingly. One year, my youngest son, Mac, he played soccer. And on his team, there were two kids with the same name, Casey. One Casey was male and the other Casey was female. And in their first game, the coach started barking out instructions to Casey. Casey, 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 clear it. Casey, pass it. But there was some confusion because the two Casey's didn't know which Casey he was talking to. And so they were running this way and that way and there was just no coordination at all. I have to give it to the coach though. He solved the problem. Because he started shouting, pass it Casey boy, clear it Casey girl. And that's how he referred to him, Casey boy, Casey girl, cleared it up. And this is how we can win the Christian life. You see, I've got to differentiate between the new me and the old me. When temptation raises its ugly head and the world calls my name, it's calling for the old Sandy. And if the old Sandy responds, I'm in trouble. In those those times, in those moments, I've got to remember that I'm not the old Sandy any longer. That I'm the new Sandy. The old Sandy was crucified with Christ, and now a new Sandy has been risen with new life in Jesus. And I've got to discern the difference. In doing so, I can forsake the old and I can synchronize my life with the new. This is the Christian life, this is how you live it. For we're told in verse 11 in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, Greek nor, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Recall these false teachers in Colossae, the early Gnostics. They had developed a spiritual elitism. They had supposedly a special knowledge from God that everyone else lacked. And here Paul assures the Colossians that's not true, that in Christ there's no such thing as spiritual exclusivity, that in Christ all distinctions, racial, cultural, social, are abolished. Did you know that all Christians are one? That as Christians, we're one family. At the foot of the cross, we're all on equal ground, equal footing before the Father in heaven. There is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, sickly, and slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Notice this, he calls you the elect of God. How beautiful is that? Again, there is no elitism within the ranks of Christianity. But all Christians together form a pretty elite group, don't they? We are the elect. We are the chosen of God. In Christ, God considers each of us holy and beloved. You know, for God to consider you to be special, you don't have to climb a mountain or swim an ocean, or work a miracle, or receive a vision, or evangelize a country. If you're in Christ, God considers you special, holy, and beloved for no other reason than being in Christ Jesus. We are complete in Him. You could say, God has no elite, only the elect. And if you're in Christ, you're one of them. And since you're the elect of God, again, why don't you dress like it? You need to fit the part. He says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. In other words, we need to think of ourselves as in Christ, and then we need to treat each other as special in Christ Jesus. Did you know that God has a dress code? He does. Did you know that God cares about what you wear to church? Yep. It's a big deal to God what you wear to church. As a kid, my parents told me that God deserves my very best. And so whenever I went to church, that translated into my best clothes. A white dress shirt that you didn't dare get dirty. And then one of those little starched collars that felt like a hangman's noose. And then a tie with one of those choke knots that they put on people that are about to hang themselves. And then a stifling coat. And then those itchy pants. And then those stiff shoes designed by the devil himself. It made a young boy not want to go to church. Well, I still believe that we're supposed to wear our best to church. But the best that God desires has nothing to do with your clothes. God is more concerned about your attitude. When you come to church, He wants you to dress up with your very best character and your very best courtesies and your very best conduct. Put on tender mercies, He says. Compassion, empathy. This is how we should treat each other in the body of Christ. And then He says, put on kindness. I I, I love the Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain once said of an acquaintance, he said, He was a good man in the worst sort of a way. I've met a few folks that really fit that description. Did you know you can be good? You can be moral, but still be harsh and hypocritical and self-righteousness and basically a jerk. Did you know you can be a moral jerk? We need to be loving and kind at the same time that we're moral. He says, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is a gracious winner. The meek person doesn't get penalized 15 yards for excessive celebration. He wins graciously. His goal, you see, is to win the person, not just win the argument. And then put on long-suffering or patience. You know, it's been said, patience is the virtue you admire in the driver behind you and despise in the driver ahead of you. Patience. Patience is the ability to wait on God to move. Verse 13, bearing with one another. How we need to do that, especially husbands and wives. And forgiving one another. Another good thing for us to do for each other. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. In other words, we need to treat each other the way Jesus treats us. But above all, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Dress up a Christian in love, and he'll be a good man in the best sort of a way. Well, verse 15: And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. I love this verse, the Greek word translated rule, referred to the judge at an athletic competition, literally the umpire. And Paul is saying, when you face a decision that's too close to call, when you face one of those bang, bang choices, then you need to let God's peace make the call. Does it feel right? Does it feel godly? Has God given you a peace? If so, you're safe. But, if you're uneasy about it, if God has put up a red flag in your heart, if you have no peace about it, if there's something just not right, you can't put your finger on it, but it's just not right, then you need to punch it out. No way. The problem, though, with the peace approach is its subjectivity. There are times when we can deceive our own hearts. And so along with God's peace, notice verse 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So, say you come up to me and you say, Sandy, I've been praying about it and I finally have a peace. God has finally given me a peace about not paying my taxes. Wait a minute. Your peace is a piece of garbage, is what it is. It's a deception, it's the work of the devil. God isn't going to give you a piece to do something that He has commanded in His Word for you to do. That's why the Word of Christ should also dwell in our hearts. We need to go through the Word. We need to let the Word go through us. We need to let God's Word dwell in us richly and fully and comprehensively, altering our attitudes and shaping our values and challenging our assumptions and changing our perspectives. Think back to the time when you really weren't in the Word, when I mean, you didn't have that background. Think of how the Word of God has changed your life. Just how you think about things, how you see things. What a dramatic change has taken place. It's because the Word of Christ dwells in you richly. And then Paul adds, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, I love Peterson's paraphrase of this. He says, let the word of Christ have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing your hearts out to God. So here's what we should do. We should look for God's peace. We should learn from God's word. And we should love the Lord with all our hearts. And if we do, we'll live our lives smack dab in the center of God's will. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Notice, in word or deed. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? In other words, we need to run every thought, every desire, every attitude, every comment, every action through this filter. What would Jesus do? In word or deed. We need to do it unto the Lord. As we said at the outset tonight, the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. And in the next few verses, Paul will describe how a heavenly perspective is going to affect human relationships. He begins in verse 18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Biblical marriage is an ordered equality. The man and the woman are equal in value, but they are distinct in the roles that God has assigned to each. God calls the woman to submit or to arrange her life around her husband. And He's called the husband to be a loving leader. Now, certainly, a wife should never be dwarfed by her husband. A married couple should complement each other. A good husband will enhance and allow his wife to grow. Marriage is like a dance. It's like a tango. The husband leads, certainly. But he doesn't step on his wife's toes. He doesn't stifle his wife in any way. He takes the lead and they dance together. Notice the two stipulations here to his command in verse 18. First, the wife submits to her own husband. Thus, if you've got a problem with Kathy then you need to go through me. Kathy submitted to me, not to you. We once had this guy who cornered my wife one Sunday morning and jumped down her throat about some nonsense. I was on that guy's doorstep on Monday morning, letting him know I didn't really appreciate his approach, and we really never needs to happen again. A wife submits to her own husband, not just to any husband. If you have a problem with my wife, you come to me. If I have a problem with your wife... I'll go to you. If you have a problem with your wife, you're on your own. (laughs) And notice the second stipulation. As is fitting in the Lord. Notice this. A woman is under no obligation to obey, obey her husband if his demand is immoral or illegal or unbiblical. It's only in the Lord that she's to submit. A wife doesn't belong to her husband. She belongs to the Lord. We husbands need to realize this and be careful how we treat God's daughter. And then, husbands should love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. A husband's job is to love his wife, to cover her, to encourage her in her spiritual growth. A husband is responsible for his wife's welfare, even for the stuff that's not his fault. That's how you love your wife as Christ loves the church. Jesus took responsibility for the stuff that wasn't his fault. He died for our sin. This is how a husband is like Jesus to his wife. He takes responsibility for the stuff that's not his fault. That she brings the baggage that she might bring into the relationship or the problems that might result. You take responsibility for your wife, for the stuff that's not your fault. I think a big part of our responsibility as the head of our home is to protect our marriage from stalemate. It's the husband's role to keep wedlock from becoming deadlock. Well, I'm not really going to tell her that I'm sorry for what I did until she tells me she's sorry for what she did. She started it. She caused the problem. And maybe she did. Don't tell me you've got nothing to apologize for, that you didn't pour a little fuel on the fire. You see, a leader takes the initiative. He's first to accept the responsibility and take the initiative for reconciliation. The husband should be the first to say he's sorry, to try to keep open the communication. As the leader in his home, God wants the husband to be the first to seek reconciliation, even when your wife is wrong. By the way, Jesus showed grace, didn't he? He showed lots of it. Romans 5 verse 8 reminds us, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Jesus take the initiative? When we had cleaned up our act? No, no. When we were still sinners, he died for us. And husbands should be dying for their wives. Let's die to our pride and never give in to bitterness. Verse 20, he talks to children. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Notice here the reciprocal responsibility in the Christian ethic. Paul's command for children to obey their parents was nothing new for the Jews and the Romans. But the responsibility for parents to avoid needlessly agitating and frustrating their kids was revolutionary. The Roman legal code, there was a Roman legal code known as the patria potestis, or the power of the father. This stated that the Roman father could basically do anything to his kids that he wanted, that his kids were basically his property, that he could sell his kids into slavery if he chose. He could even take their lives if they became a nuisance. Some of us who were wild bucks earlier in our life when we were radical teenagers. We should be glad we grew up in the Christian era, not into ancient Rome. Life would have been more problematic for us. Here God wants kids to obey their parents. And God wants parents to show their kids love and encouragement. Dad, don't aggravate your kids. Don't berate them. Or discipline them harshly. Remember, they need a cheerleader more than they need a critic. The world is a critic. They need some cheerleaders in their corner. You need to encourage them and get behind them. And kids need to listen to their parents. All parents, all parents are a lot smarter than their kids think they are. It's tough for a kid to submit to the father. If, if It's tough for a kid to submit to the father that they can't see. If they're not willing to submit to the Father that they can see. Hope that made sense. Verse 22. Bond servants, or you could say employees, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh or your employer. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Not just when the boss is on the job site observing what you're doing. No, you should obey him in sincerity of heart. Fearing God. Never forget, your boss is always watching. When a Christian goes to work each morning, he or she isn't working for the company. We work for the Lord in all that we do. We should do for Him. How we do our job is a big part of our witness. He says, for whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve The Lord Christ. Now you see, right now your boss at work signs your paychecks, but the paycheck that really counts—your eternal reward—will have God's signature at the bottom. Don't forget that. A man once saw Mother Teresa; she was washing the open sores and bandaging the pus-filled wounds of Calcutta sick. When he remarked, "Wow, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars," Teresa answered. And neither would I. She too was looking for not an earthly reward, but an eternal reward. She was looking for her reward from the Lord. He says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. God is just. God is going to be fair with both His prizes and His punishments. Chapter 4 tells us, Master's, Give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Every boss on earth has a boss in heaven. And remember bosses, your boss wasn't bossy, was he? Jesus made himself a servant. Jesus humbled himself and refused to throw his weight around. Rather than intimidate or manipulate, Jesus served sacrificially. And this is how a Christian boss should behave toward those under him or her. We should love and serve others. If you're an employer and you bemoan the lack of loyalty you're getting from your employees, you should ask yourself, have you given them a reason to be loyal? Do you treat your employees with kindness? Do you respect them? If you do, they'll work harder for you. Verse 2 Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Persevere in prayer. Don't just pray once and give up. Continue to pray. Verse 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the Word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Now remember, Paul is in prison when he's writing this. But rather than praying for him to get out He asked the Colossians to pray that the word of God would get out. Paul isn't so much concerned about himself as he is about the advancement of the gospel. He adds in verse 4, And that I may make it manifest or clear as I ought to speak. Paul isn't praying for charity. He's praying for clarity. He wants to be effective in his witness. And then in verse 5 he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Now this past week, the editors of the Atlanta Journal website, they kept running a countdown to the SEC championship game on their website. And they had a little blog, a little line on their website that gave you the days and the hours and the minutes and the seconds till the kickoff. It was strange to watch those seconds click off. But it was a reminder that there are limits to a team's preparation. Ready or not, when game time arrives, you play. That means that you need to make the most of your practice. And did you know that somewhere in the universe right now, there is a clock that's ticking? It's posting the days and the hours and the minutes and the seconds. Until you die and meet your maker. Until the kickoff of eternity for you. Did you know that? How sobering it would be if we could see how much time was left. I'll bet it would change our preparation. We'd put a lot more effort into practice, wouldn't we? We would need to realize, we all need to realize that our days are numbered. We do need to make our time on earth count. People say they don't have time to pray or read the Bible or memorize Scripture. And yet, did you know the average person spends six months of his or her life sitting at red lights? When you add it all up, you spend six months of your life at red lights. What if you prayed at every red light? Now, don't close your eyes. Keep your eyes open. But what if you prayed at every red light? Or what if you brought along some Scripture to memorize every time you stopped at a red light? Paul is telling us to redeem the time, to make it count. Because the seconds, they are ticking. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now before you became a Christian, do you remember ever walking in, bellying up to the bar And seeing those bowls of free peanuts and pretzels awaiting you? You were so stupid, you thought the bartender was just trying to be nice. Not so. Bartenders know that salt makes you thirsty. So if they can keep you munching on peanuts and pretzels, they'll keep you buying drinks and spending money. And it's this thirst-producing quality of salt that Paul says should characterize our speech. For when we interact with unbelievers, we can sprinkle into our conversation biblical truths and spiritual insights and maybe some thought-provoking statements, even some praises to God. We can add salt to our speech. And what will it do? It will create a thirst in the hearts of those that we're speaking to. Just in natural ways, in conversational ways, we can let the person we're speaking to know that Jesus is active in our lives and He can be active in their life too. We can use casual conversations to make folks thirsty for Christ. Now Paul begins to close his letter at this point. He closes this letter to the Colossians with some personal correspondence. One of the things you'll notice about Paul is that he was not only a great soul winner, Paul was also a great friend maker. Had lots of friends, as we'll see in this chapter. It's been said, I went out to find a friend but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. I think Paul had so many friends because he was such a good friend to have. He took time to communicate, which is what he does here at the end of Colossians. Beginning in verse 7, Paul addresses his pals. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Tychicus was Paul's mailman. He was the one who had delivered this letter to the Colossians, and he would bring back to Paul a report on their welfare. And he'll come with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Now we're going to learn a lot about Onesimus in Paul's letter to Philemon. But just take note, Onesimus was a member of the church in Colossae. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Oh my, this speaks so powerfully. Mark's name in Paul's letter is a wonderful gesture. Do you remember after their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they got into a conflict, a squabble. It even happens to apostles. But they parted ways as a result. It was an apostolic split. And it was caused by a disagreement over Barney's cousin, Mark. For some reason, Mark had abandoned the work in midstream on their first missionary journey. So when they started planning their second trip, Paul balked at bringing Mark along again. Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin. Paul did it, and both refused to budge. Can you imagine two hard-headed men of God? Paul ended up teaming with Silas. They went one way. Mark and Barnabas formed their own duo and went the other way. Hard feelings had broken up church leaders. And yet here, years later, by the time Paul writes Colossians, whatever ill feelings he might have had toward Mark have now passed. The fellowship between Paul and Mark had been restored. Evidently Mark had visited Paul in Rome and here Paul considered his fellowship refreshing and valuable. In fact Paul will later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11 and he'll say of Mark, "He is useful to me for ministry." It's comforting to know that Paul and Mark were not so spiritual that they never had a blow up or a fallout. It's also comforting to know that they were spiritual enough to get over it and to forgive and to rejoin forces. Sounds like to me they were human after all, weren't they? Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, he was another one that was with Paul. Apparently there were three friends who were with Paul in Rome, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus... This surname Jesus was actually a very common Jewish name in the first century. This is why the Gospels, remember, referred to the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. That distinguished in him from the other Jesuses. Paul says of these three men, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. These men were the only Jews who had stood with Paul there in Rome. Verse 12, Epaphras who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. Now, Epaphras was the leader of the church in Colossae. He was the concerned pastor who had rushed to Paul with the news of this heresy that had been brewing in the church. And he had also been praying for the Colossians. And I love how Paul describes Epaphras' prayer life. He says that he was always laboring fervently. Wow. When was the last time you could say you had labored in prayer? When was the last time you really worked at it? Have you ever prayed and got up sweating? Have you ever worked up a lather as you prayed? Did you passionately intercede for others? This is how Epaphras prayed for the Colossians. He prayed for these people. And he also prayed for the two sister churches in the neighboring cities. He prayed also for those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Then he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Here we learn that Luke was not only a historian and the author of the third gospel, but he was, in addition, a medical doctor. He was a physician. Perhaps he was Paul's personal physician. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he spoke of a reoccurring eye problem that he had to deal with. It could be that Luke traveled with Paul to treat him at times when his illness would act up and become severe. At this point, too, Demas was with Paul. Sadly, though, we're going to learn later in 2 Timothy that when the going got rough, Demas got going. He loved the world more than Christ, and he abandoned Paul. Verse 15 tells us, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Nymphos, and the church that is in his house. Notice the church in Laodicea here met in a house. You know, it wasn't until the third century that churches started meeting in designated buildings. For the first 300 years of church history, the church fellowshiped from home to home. Here, Nymphus was either the pastor or the host or probably both of the church in Laodicea. Later in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus himself will have a letter which will contain some stern words for the church in Laodicea. Now when this epistle is read among you, see to it that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Paul wanted both churches to share each other's letter. When they had finished Colossians, they were to pass it on to Laodicea, and Laodicea would do the same for them. In fact, churches have been passing this letter to the Colossians around for the last 2,000 years, haven't they? As a matter of fact, tonight, the church in Stone Mountain is reading Paul's letter to the Colossians. Evidently, all the New Testament letters belong to all the New Testament churches. I like that. The application of these New Testament letters is universal. Of course, this brings up another question. Where is Paul's letter to the Laodiceans? And the answer? Buried under the sands of time. It no longer exists. Verse 17. Apparently, it wasn't important to us. Verse 17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry of... Which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. We'll also meet Archippus again with Onesimus when we study Paul's letter to Philemon. And then he writes, This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Now remember, Paul, it was Paul's custom to dictate his letters to a stenographer. And then at the end of the dictation, he would take the pen himself and he would sign the letter with his own signature to mark its authenticity so the people would know this was really from Paul. But here, as he reaches for the quill to sign his name, the chains on his wrists rattle again. It reminds Paul of the imprisonment that he faces for the cause of Christ. And so he closes his letter to Colossae with this request, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's letter to the Colossians. Next Sunday night, we're going to take the first three chapters in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So make sure you read them beforehand. And we've got some time tonight for some questions, if we have any.